Now, dear Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. At this point in Mark's gospel, we're halfway through the eighth chapter. And so Jesus, at this point in Mark's gospel, is pretty much a celebrity. Let's just say it. In the sixth chapter, he feeds over 5,000 people. He's out there in this preaching ministry. Uh, in the eighth chapter, which we're in right now, he feeds and preaches to over 4,000 people. If God would just bless St. Paul's and Somerville with that many people, it'd be awesome. But he's uh, a little bit better preacher than I am, so I'll give, you give him the glory. But you can imagine, though, at, at the midpoint in the gospel, it's high time that Jesus asks a question, a midterm exam, to see what all these throngs of people think about him and his ministry. And so today I want to challenge you to look with me at chapter 8, uh, starting with verse 27 in the gospel. And I'm going to challenge you like I challenged the door hall people last week to encourage you to bring your own Bibles. Uh, if it's on your iPad or your smartphone or whatever, you know you can highlight those things. And you know, if you actually bring the scripture, you can write in those things. Uh, you're not blaspheming God at all. In fact, the prayer book says we should read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest the scriptures. We're Anglicans. We're a, a biblical congregation of biblical people. So start to do that. So look at chapter 8, verse 27. He starts with a softball of a question. You know, one you can hit out of the park real easily. He says to his disciples, who do people say that I am? In other words, what are the opinion polls saying about me? And of course, they say, well, you, you know, some people say you're kind of like your cousin John, and some people say you're kind of like Elijah. Remember, he didn't die, he ascended into heaven, and, and maybe you're like him, come again, or, or one of the other prophets. That's easy enough. Then Jesus asked the prickly question, right? Look at verse 29. And he asked them, the disciples, this question, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? It's pass or fail, guys. This is your midterm exam. We're halfway through. Who do you say that I am? Well, of course, look at 29, verse 29. Peter is the one who gets it right, right? You're the Christ. You are the Messiah, the anointed one. And he's not only saying you're one in a line of, a, of messiahs or anointed ones in the line of David. He's saying you are the Mac Daddy. You're the king of kings. You're the Lord of lords. You're the one we've been waiting for all of this time. You are it. You're the Messiah. Peter, you are smarter than a fifth grader. Awesome. Go to the front of the class. Claim your prize. You exempt the finals. Awesome. A++, right? Now, hold on, church. You know better than that. You know the rest of the story, don't you? We know that it wasn't an A++ answer. It was at best a C answer. He got the right answer, but he didn't have the right method on how he was going to be the Messiah. You know, you can have the right answer, but if you can't show the steps leading up to it, you, you don't get full credit. And, and that happened to my son Davis, who's here today, my middle son. He was taking calculus, I believe it was, a few years ago. He had four questions. And he answered all of them exactly right, down to the decimal point. But he only got a B on the test. Now, why is that? Because he couldn't show the method that the teacher had taught them. He got the answer right, but he didn't have the method right. 
Hold that in your mind, because that's what happened to Peter. He got the answer right, but he didn't get the method right. Look at verse 31. Here's the method, Jesus says. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. The Son of Man must suffer. Does that say the Son of Man will suffer? No, it's not a prediction of what's going to happen to Jesus. This is the definite plan and foreknowledge of God happening in the world. He must suffer. The Son of Man. Let's unpack that for a minute. And many of you may be thinking, well, that simply means that Jesus was born of flesh and blood. He had a daddy. DNA was passed down to Jesus. It's more than that. More than that. We're all sons and daughters of men in that way. But what Jesus is referring to is an ancient prophecy from Daniel chapter 7 about the Son of Man. Whenever Jesus talks about himself as the Son of Man, that's what he's thinking about. Over 80 times, Jesus, that's his favorite phrase when referring to himself. Over 80 times, Jesus said, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Son of Man, I'm the Son of Man. Here's what it meant in chapter 7. Daniel saw a vision of heaven. He says in verse 13, I saw in the night visions... And behold, the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. This is written hundreds of years before Jesus. And he came to the Ancient of Days, which is God, and presented himself before the Ancient of Days. And to him, the Son of Man, is given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and it shall not pass away and his kingdom will never be destroyed. When Jesus says, I'm the son of man, that's what he's talking about. So in Mark chapter 8, look at verse 38. We know that that's what he means because the second part of verse 38, Jesus says, the son of man will come in the glory of his father with the holy angels. So he is the Messiah, the anointed one. And Peter got that much right this morning. But he fails in verse 31. The Son of Man must suffer. In verse 32. Read that with me. Jesus began to talk to them plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and rebuked him for it. Now that word rebuke is the same Greek word that is used when Jesus rebukes demons. Peter is saying, no way, no how. This is not going to happen. You will not suffer. You will not die. Now, of course, Jesus then turns it back on Peter and rebukes him and says, Get behind me, Satan. But you understand the problem. Peter is okay with Daniel chapter 7. He's not okay with Isaiah 50, which we just read, or Isaiah 53 that talks about a suffering servant. In Isaiah 53, it says that this suffering servant was going to come and he was going to make his grave with the wicked. And in his death, though he had done no violence and no deceit was on his mouth, the Lord's going to crush him and put him to grief, and he's going to make an offering for our guilt. He's okay with Daniel 7, you're the son of man, but the must suffer part, he's not okay with. You see, Peter, for his entire life, was probably bounced on his daddy's knee from a young child, and he was told for his entire life, the son of man's coming, the glorious king's coming, the one in the line of David's coming, the anointed one who's going to make everything right again, he's coming. Everybody knew that. But what he didn't know was the fulfillment of that king was going to bring suffering and pain for the king. 
Now those two things come together here in Mark chapter 8 for the first time. No Jewish person would have put Isaiah 50 and Daniel 7 together. Jesus alone does that. Christianity is unlike anything else. The Son of Man must suffer. Orthodox theologians for 2,000 years have believed both, and you need to believe both. He's both the Son of Man come in glory and the one come to suffer for his people. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the cross. Now, there are two things that, that the cross tells us. We won't mention the first and most obvious, and it will be a, a topic for another sermon at some point, but it's the atonement. And on the cross, Jesus made atonement for your sins. He died in your place. He absorbed the wrath of God. He set you free from sin, and by his stripes you're healed. That's the sermon for another, another day. The other part was, is this, and this is the application for today. Jesus died on the cross to show us what pure love looks like. Absolutely unadulterated love on the cross. Perfect love. Because none of us has perfect love. We're not born with it. If you read C.S. Lewis's book, The Four Loves, you'll discover that he divides all the loves into two categories. Need love and gift love. We're all born with need love. Everybody needs love, right? Everybody. We need to love and to be loved. But there's something about need love that's incomplete. It's imperfect. Here are the reasons. First of all, need love is conditional. Need love is conditional. You might love your friend because he or she is supportive and encouraging and, and good to you and builds you up. You might love that young lady that sits across from you in English class because she is beautiful and makes you feel all giddy on the inside. You may love your daughter who's an excellent student and really doing well and makes you proud. But you get something from that. You're getting something from that. Wait till the beautiful girl in English class loses her beauty. Are you going to love her then? Wait till that friend that's so encouraging stops encouraging you. Are you going to love him then? Wait till that daughter of you, yours who's such a good student is strung out on drugs. Will you love her then? You see, our love is conditional. Number two, it's selfish. Our love's selfish. If you remember the 1996 movie, uh, Jerry Maguire, you know what I'm talking about. Jerry Maguire uh, is an arrogant, brash, prideful person. Tom Cruise plays that character well. Uh, he's he fit for it. <laughs> uh, but there's this, this beautiful scene, right, at the end of the movie when he goes up to Renee Zellweger and says, you complete me. He had a need love, and he got in touch with need love, and he said, now you complete me. It's beautiful. I shed a tear. I'm sure you guys will admit you shed a tear at that point. But that's need love. He needed her to complete him. Gift love you see only on the cross. Because gift love doesn't have to do with anything other than I love you for your sake. You know, God is, is majestic. He's the king. You can't add to his majesty because you love him back. You're not bringing anything to the table. You're not increasing or enhancing his character. God is God, independent of whether you love him back or not. He loves you because he chooses to love you. No more or no less. You know, Jesus is not only the son of man coming glory, 
He's also part of the Trinity. And get this, from before all time, the Father loved the Son, and the Son loved the Spirit, and the Spirit loved the Father. It was this awesome merry-go-round of love from before all time and through all time. God is love. You can't add love to God. He doesn't need your love. But he loves you because he loves who you are, not who you, what you can give to him. He chose to love us. Now, Paul says in Romans 5 that he loved you when you were unlovable. He says, while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. The Son of Man must suffer. God shows his love for us in this, that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. The Son of Man must suffer. Christ died for us while we were enemies, Paul says. The Son of Man, the King of Glory, must suffer. That's the gospel. I had somebody, when we were going through Genesis one time in one of my Bible studies, ask me, why did God bother to create us if he knew we were going to break his heart like that? I said, because he loves you. No, 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 no. Why would God create you in in knowledge that you're going to betray him? Because he loves you. He chooses to love us independent of anything we can earn. It's crazy. It's grace. It's grace. In verse 34, it's not only grace, but the Bible says that if you get in connection with the grace that Jesus had for us, then you can start to share grace with others, the grace of the cross, the love of, of Jesus on the cross. Look at verse eight, chapter 8, verse 34. Jesus called the crowd together with the disciples, and he said to them, If any of you would come after me, let him deny himself, that's gift love, take up his cross and follow me. That's gift love, not need love. The king of glory bore a cross of shame. The king who before, uh, before whom all creation must one day bow is now bowing to the cross of, of shame. The king who had a right to crush his people because they were enemies of God loved them instead and he took on our sins. That is gift love, pure and unadulterated and the only place you'll ever see it in its purest form is on the cross of Christ. And if you get in touch with it, that gospel will transform how you love other people. If you haven't seen the movie yet, War Room, you need to go and see it. War Room. It's a movie of Tony and Elizabeth Jordan. Uh, They are married, but for all the wrong reasons. They are social climbers, living a jet-set lifestyle. He is strong and handsome and athletic He brings home the big bucks so that they can maintain that lifestyle of the rich and famous. And she loves him for what he gives to her. That's need love. That's need love. He hits rock bottom, though, in the film, right? And he loses his job. He loses his dignity. He loses his pride. He's unable to support his family. But in the midst of all this, this wonderful, saintly, elderly African-American woman has come alongside Elizabeth and shared with her the gospel. Her name's Clara. And suddenly, Elizabeth's idea of love is transformed because she met the love of Jesus on the cross, the perfect love. And she now knows that she is loved by God, not because of what she can give back to God, but simply for who she is. And so when her husband comes in there that day and says, Honey, I lost my job. She says, That's okay. We'll get another one. Honey, I lost my job. That's okay. We'll we'll downsize our house. Honey, I lost my job. 
That's okay, honey. I'll take on more of my responsibility to make up for your loss of income. You see, she was no longer loving him for what she could get, a need love. She's loving him through the eyes of God, as we're seen by God. That's agape. That's a gift love. And it changes everything. Suddenly her household's changed. I mean, he can't, he can't even imagine that. He said to her, and she, he said, I'm just so confused. I thought you were going to rail at me. I thought you were going to yell at me. I thought you were going to put me in my place for losing my job. And, and here you say, it's okay? What's up with that? You see, it's unnatural. Need love is natural. Gift love is not. The Bible says in 1 John 4, We love because God first loved us and sent His Son to be a propitiation for our sins. We don't know what love looks like until you get in touch with the cross. The Son of Man must suffer to show us what real love is. It is gift love. And it can tick you off. It can confound you. Uh, Like Tony in the war room, he couldn't understand it until he stood for a while under the beauty of the cross and felt the warmth and the grace and the love of God. And once his heart was transformed, he was willing to, to reconcile with his wife. You see, that's what grace does. We love because he first loved us. Now, I said that this is your midterm exam, that the Son of Man must suffer, but it's really not just your midterm today. Uh, It's actually your final exam. Who do you say that Jesus is? That is your final exam. That is the only question that's ever going to matter in your life, and your answer to that question makes every bit of difference to the person beside you in the pew, to your children, to your wife to the world, to your church? Who do you say that Jesus is? That's your final question. See, the Son of Man, or the Son of Man who must suffer to show us real love. I think he's both Daniel 7 and Isaiah 50 come together for the first time. And if you'll step into that grace and feel the warmth of his embrace, you'll begin to love others as he loves you. Not for what you can give to them or what you can receive from them, simply loving them for who they are. By the grace of God, we'll all get in touch with that, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.